King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And you remember how Ahab coveted a neighbor's vineyard and his neighbor was named Naboth, boys and girls. You remember that? And how Jezebel conspired to put Naboth to death. And so um, King Ahab took Naboth's land. Well, because of this sin, because the blood of Naboth cried out to heaven against Ahab and Jezebel, God raised up a prophet to go and tell Ahab that judgment was coming upon his house, that God was going to destroy the entirety of his descendants. There would no longer be a descendant of his upon the throne. You remember how Ahab shows some contrition for this, and because of that contrition, God doesn't revoke the justice, but he does delay it. And so God does allow for a season, the house of Ahab to continue, but then eventually does bring judgment. How does he do it? Well, he does it through a king named Jehu. Jehu is anointed by the prophet, and Jehu then begins to destroy the house of Ahab and Jezebel. As he is doing this, you remember that he meets Ahab, or excuse me, he meets Ahab's descendant um, at the garden of Naboth. God providentially causes Jehu to drive furiously and ends up meeting uh, the kings of the north and the south in Naboth's field. Jehu shoots an arrow into Joram, who is a descendant of Ahab. Joram is shot in the chariot, and he ends up dying. Ahaziah tries to escape, but only makes it as far as the garden house in Naboth's property. And Ahaziah orders Ahaziah, the southern king, to be killed. And he dies. Now, why are these two kings of the north and south together? Well, you'll remember because there was, an, there was a marriage alliance. One of the tragic providential events of the southern kingdom was to allow the godly seed of David to intermarry with the house of Ahab. And because of that, they were now related. And that's why Ahaziah was up north visiting his relative, um, Joram, and Jehu ends up killing them both. Now, when news comes down to the south, now we're coming back down to the south here. When the news comes back down south that Ahaziah has been killed, the queen mother of King Ahaziah named Athaliah, and I know this can get confusing, all these names, Athaliah, the queen mother, begins to kill all the royal offspring and seeks to destroy the lineage of David and to take the throne for herself and also to usurp the throne and to promote Baal worship. Well, because of this, Jehoshaphat, the sister of Ahaziah, hides Joash. Joash is our main character today. Joash was an infant when Athaliah was killing the offspring of David. And he is hidden in the temple where there's a godly high priest named Jehoiada. Jehoiada hides Joash in the temple until Joash turns seven years old. When Joash turns seven years old, Jehoiada calls together the captains of the guard 
and others and shows them, secretly shows them, the boy king and says, this Joash is the son of David. He is your king. And he elicits from them an oath that they will be the Lord's and that they would do what is right. And so they put together this plan where they will reveal the king, the boy king. He will stand at the king's pillar at the temple and there will be this fanfare and they will declare that he is the king and they do so and there is great rejoicing except with Athaliah. Athaliah hears about this noise. Remember that the temple is right across the street essentially from the palace. The, the, the state and the church are right there across from each other. She goes over to see what this commotion is about and she sees the boy king standing where the king is supposed to stand and she yells treason, treason and Jehoiada orders that Athaliah be arrested and they take her out and they execute her for she was the one who actually was covenantally treasonous. So um, then we see that Jehoiada arranges a covenant ceremony. The king swears that he will be faithful to the Lord. The people swear in a covenant that they will be faithful to the Lord. Remember, and we talked about John Knox, the fourfold covenant that Knox uh, saw in, in this chapter and in others. The king swears that he will be faithful to the Lord, number one. Number two, that the people swear that they will be faithful to the Lord. Number three, that the king swears that to the people before the Lord that he will be faithful as a king to the people. And then finally, the, the fourth covenant being that the people swear in the presence of God that they as a people will be faithful to the king. So you have this fourfold covenantal ceremony taking place. As that ceremony is finished, then the work of reformation ensues. It's interesting here. You have the covenant renewal and then the reformation, not the reformation and covenant renewal. They swear on the covenant with God that they will be faithful. And then what do they do? They go and they destroy the house of Baal and they kill the priests of Baal. And so this reformation takes place here. Now, um, what, what do we make of all this, and, and how does that lead to today's lesson? Well, let me give you a, just a couple, a couple applications in this introduction, and then I want to look at, in three parts, about Joash as an adult king. First of all, we see one of the things that we have seen here is that the lineage of the house of David was definitely threatened by the attacks of Satan. But we also note here that God was faithful to his promise to David. In 2 Samuel 7, you remember that that is where the Lord promised David that he would build a house. Remember David said, I want to build a house for the Lord. And, and the prophet Nathan said, hey, that's a great idea. Go do that. And then Nathan's going home to have supper. And the Lord says to Nathan, hey, go back. Uh, before you go home, I want you to go back and I want you to talk to David again. All right, what do you want me to tell him? Tell him, you're not building a house for me, David. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to make you an everlasting house. One of your descendants will always be. And what that was, was the Lord confirming a covenant with David that would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, who is the son of David, would become that king. And we have a king, America. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our king. A lot of us like to think we have no king. We have a king. 
Jesus Christ is, is our king. He's, he's the king not just of my private life or of, of my family and church, but he is the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. And this kingship and this covenant that God made with David is sung about in Psalm 89. Maybe this afternoon you can review or sing Psalm 89 and where, where this covenant is, is confirmed again through the words of the psalmist. And so here we are, 2,800 years after the days of Joash, at Covenant Presbyterian Church. Why are we here? We are here because God has been faithful to David through Jesus Christ. The reason this church exists today is because of the faithfulness to God in that covenant that he made with David and confirmed as yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's why you and I exist here today. We're here because God is faithful. 2,800 years later, God still has a people who are followers of his king. So what then for us? Well, we ought, on the basis of this revelation and information, we should, what? Put our trust again in the Lord. We should renew our covenant with the Lord, with the King. We should reaffirm that we will be the Lord's people. He will be our God and that Jesus Christ will be our King and we will obey him wholeheartedly. Because God has given us a king better than the king Jehoash. We have a better king in Jesus Christ. We have a perfect king, a sinless king. We're going to see here this morning that Jehoash, and sometimes boys and girls call Joash, so you might find me going back and forth. The Bible does too. But this king is not a perfect king. But Jesus Christ is a perfect king. This is why if you've never made a covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ this morning, let me say in the name of Christ that you, you lay hold to this covenant yourself. How do you lay hold of this covenant, you say? You lay hold of it by faith in Jesus Christ. You say, Lord, I am a sinner. I, by nature, I am a, a, a covenant breaker. I am a child of Adam, and we broke covenant with you in the garden. And I was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. And I am guilty of breaking this covenant. But God, in your mercy, you've made a new covenant with me. A covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, by grace, I lay hold of these terms. That I would believe in your Son. Believe in his obedience. Believe in his sinlessness. His impeccability. In his righteousness. In his substitutionary death. In his vicarious resurrection. And Lord, I lean the whole of my being on Christ and Christ alone. My mind is on Christ. My soul is laid on Jesus Christ. My affections are on Jesus Christ. My will is submissive to the will of Jesus Christ. Christ becomes my king. He is my beginning and end. He's my alpha. He is my omega. He's the first. He's the last of my entire life. This is how you enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord. You pledge yourself to be the Lord's, to be one of God's people. And, and you come into that relationship by faith. Listen, the Lord is gracious to sinners. He wants 
new people to become covenant members of his kingdom. He wants, and he doesn't choose the best. He doesn't choose the most righteous. He doesn't choose the smartest. He doesn't choose the most clever of people. He chooses sinners. He chooses the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of this age. He chooses foolish people like you and me to be his people. And so don't think, oh, well, I've got I've to clean up ABC first in my life, and then maybe I'll think about signing the covenant with the Lord. I, I've got to you know, do this or do that, and maybe God will accept me on the basis of these new works that I'm trying to do. No, that's not the basis of this covenant relationship. The covenant relationship is based on Lord Jesus Christ. You say that Christ has obeyed. Christ's life is perfect in the sight of God, and Christ graciously offers me that life if I will believe on him. These are excellent terms, friends. I'm a preacher. I'm not a salesman, but if I were a salesman, I'd say, you're not going to get a better offer than this. This is the best of offers. There, There are no better terms to be reconciled to God and to be a part of God's people. To, and maybe, maybe you are in covenant with God this morning, but the, the covenant has waned in your, in your thinking. The covenant has waned in your affections, in your heart. And you need to renew the covenant with the Lord today. You, you need to reaffirm the covenant and your commitment to Christ. We see here, as I said, that, that, that there was a, a covenant renewal taking place at the end of chapter 11. And as we move into chapter 12, We see the renewal of the covenant and then the reformation. Reaffirm your dedication to Jesus Christ and then go out and be the salt and the light to bring the reformation. That's the pattern set before us in this chapter. Renew the covenant with Christ, with God's people. Sign the covenant. Sign the covenant. Put your name on that covenant with the Lord. The boy king, even at age seven, young people, Jehoiada was only seven years old. And what did he do? He, he affirmed the covenant. You know, Jehoiada was secretly discipling Joash while Joash was being raised in the temple. What do you think was going on? Why do you think Jehoiada? Jehoiada is a wise man. What, what, what do you think he's doing putting a boy king on the throne? He was training Jehoiada from his earliest days. Think about that. Teaching him the law of Moses. Making Joash memorize the law of Moses. The king, you remember, what did Deuteronomy say the king had to do? The king had to own the covenant. He had to take a pen, a quill in hand, and a parchment, and begin to transcribe for himself the words of this covenant, line by line by line. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the king had to write it all out. Seven years old. You teaching your seven-year-olds? You teaching your seven-year-olds Leviticus? You teaching your seven-year-olds the book of Deuteronomy? Are you teaching your seven-year-olds the covenant, blessings and curses, chapters 27, 28 in Deuteronomy? Are you you teaching them to raise them to maturity? He's a boy king. Jehoiada's 
Jehoiada here is just training this boy. Now, obviously, he still was going to have advisors. But he was going to make sure that Joash was put on the right course. He wasn't going to leave it up to Joash to decide for himself, was he? Whether he would own the covenant or not? No, we don't do that here. We're Presbyterians. You have no choice in the matter. (laughs) We're baptized into the covenant. And that's a great blessing. It's far better to be baptizing Christ as an infant and raised from your earliest days with your mother's milk on the word of God to own the covenant. It's far better than having some dramatic conversion story where you've been living with the pigs until you're well into your adult years and then suddenly having this transformation in your life. Don't envy that. I mean, praise God for it. It's far better to be trained by, like Joash in the temple from your earliest days. You new parents, are you going to train your children from its earliest days? Oh, I'm going to wait until they can understand those big concepts. I'm not going to make them say those words, justification, sanctification. What does my three-year-old know about that? Friend, you put the words in their mouth and pray the Spirit of God will give understanding as they mature. And don't underestimate your own kids. And don't underestimate the Spirit of God to teach them important truths. You know, too often the churches are spoon-feeding the adults. You remember what the Apostle Paul had to remind the people at Corinth? You should be eating meat by now. You should be teaching now. There's a time to come off the pablum and to, and to grow and to mature. If, if we are going to see renewal in the United States, it is going to have to begin with pledging, God's people pledging themselves to be faithful to Jesus Christ the King. If there is any hope of repairing the foundations, remember what does the psalmist say? What do the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? You think your foundations are being destroyed in your culture? You, you think, you think your found, do you think just putting the right man in, in the Oval Office is going to fix the foundations of this country? No. The foundations have to be repaired from the bottom up. You can put the right man in, in the office, and if, if half of the Presbyterian church is desecrating the Sabbath day, what good is that going to do you? If half the church isn't owning the covenant, half the visible church is, is compromising on God's plain moral will for our lives. You know, I, I want good people in office, but don't kid yourself, real reformation comes by way of the Spirit of God. The United States needs to be rediscipled. You know, George Bancroft, who I've read, wasn't exactly, you know, a hardcore Calvinist, but he was called the father of American history. He wrote 10 volumes on American history. In, he was, lived in the 19th century. Do you know who he said the father of America was? George Washington? Jefferson? Adams? No. John Calvin. Said the father of America was John Calvin. 
You believe that? A lot of people in the culture don't want you to know that. You probably studied history, and your history teacher probably never told you what George Bancroft wrote in his 10 volumes on the history of the United States. By the way, today's Calvin's birthday, so thank God for John Calvin today. Covenant was renewed by Jehoiada, the boy king. And then comes the arrest and the execution of Athaliah, the destruction of Baal worship. So what do we do? Let's renew the covenant with Christ ourselves. Seek the reformation of the church of Christ, and from that, promote the kingdom of Christ to all the nations. The Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Make ten disciples out of every nation? Now, if you, if you look, the, the, the word disciple in the Greek, those of you, a couple of you know Greek, look at, look at the Great Commission in the Greek. Disciple is not a noun. It doesn't say make disciples. It says disciple the nations. It's a verb. It doesn't say, hey, get a few handfuls of converts and your job is done. It says disciple. All the nations. Tear down everything that raises itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Not with physical swords, but by the power of the Spirit. Paul says we're tearing down by the sword of the Spirit. We're taking on these strongholds. We, 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 we believe Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John said, Behold, I saw a great multitude that no man could number. Not a, not a paltry number that we could all count. Not a, not a few. A great multitude in heaven from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every little subculture from those nations. That's what every little tongue, every little dialect represented there at the throne in great numbers, great numbers, innumerable elect, not a few, not small. The mustard seed grows into the largest tree in the garden. The largest tree in the garden. Not the second largest, not the third largest, not the fourth largest, the largest. The largest tree in the whole of the garden. The mountain Daniel saw, the little rock not cut by human hands becomes a mountain and it fills the entirety of the earth. Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 7, Zion's lifted up, the whole of the earth comes streaming unto Zion to what? To be taught the law of God, the word of God. Jesus Christ is a great king. Yes, there are tares, we're told. The word is sown, and it goes out, and yes, an enemy comes along and puts tares in it, but it's still a wheat field. It's not a tare field. Not a tare field with a few threshes, a few grains of wheat in it. It's a wheat field. The mustard, um, the leaven leavens the whole of the loaf. 
we, we need to really recapture what it, the Great Commission's about. And it begins with, by renewing our covenant with Christ and then going out and doing the work of reformation. You know, I, I think, and I've fallen into this tendency myself, I think, to think I can't do much reformation until there's revival. I think reformation and revival are two sides of the very same coin. That, that we are to be about the work of reforming right now. And God uses that to what? Revive. And God revives in order to what? Bring about more reformation. So I don't think we have to just sit back and, and say, well, we're just going to wait until we see this, you know, great outworking of the Spirit. We're, we are to be building now. We are to be like Nehemiah. We're to take the sword and the trowel right now, and we are to be laying stone upon stone, brick upon brick, with one hand and the sword in, in the other hand. Build the walls of Zion. Build the, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. And, and not wait for a rush of enthusiasm or, or what Calvin called a fit of zeal. Don't wait till you have a fit of zeal. It's plotting day after day after day, doing that work of reformation in our homes, church, and our culture. Well, let me move on. That was much longer of an introduction than I intended. Let me show you three quick things here about Joash's reign. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, you have the overview of Joash's reign. Verses 4 through 16, secondly, you have Joash confronting Jehoiada over the house repairs. And then thirdly, verses 17 to 21, you see where Joash falters a bit. Or maybe you could even say he panics a bit and his faith falters. Now, overall, we see that Joash is command, commended. Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, there are some dark details that, for whatever reason, the historian does not include in 2 Kings 12, including the persecution of one of God's people, um, which may have led to his downfall in the long run. But let's take it as he is presented here in Kings. Because I think the author of Kings and the author of Chronicles each has their own agenda as to why they include and, and don't include certain things. And don't feel like, well, is Kings holding back on me? Is, is the author of Kings somehow how, you know, withholding some details uh, on me you know, for some nefarious purpose? No. The Spirit of God is working through both historians, but to different purposes. I think probably for one is to emphasize what do we need to do to see renewal in Israel? Uh, and the other is probably to instruct what are the things we need to avoid so that we you know, learn from the lessons of what it was to go into captivity. But let me move on. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 3, in this overview of Joash's reign, he has a long reign. That's usually a good sign. Not always. You do have the exceptions like Manasseh. But usually when a man was a godly king, God gave him... Uh, many years. Uh, we see Hezekiah, was, his life was extended in part because of his faithfulness. He is commended in verse 2 by the Lord. However, what do we see? We do see the high places are not removed. This is not unique to Joash. This is a chronic problem in the history of Israel. Many times as you read through both Kings and Chronicles, you'll see this refrain that the high places were not removed. So-and-so was a good king, 
but dot, 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 the high places were not removed. What are the high places? We've talked about this before, but let me just remind you, the high places were those uh, places of altars of incense or sacrifice that were scattered throughout the country, and they were not permissible. Now, they weren't worshiping other foreign gods at these high places. Let me state this. The problem with the high place, let me be clear here, is not the first commandment. It's the second commandment that's in view here. That is, the first commandment is, who do you worship? You worship the Lord alone. The high places, the problem with the high places is that God did not command these high places to be built. And so they're not worshiping an alien God at these high places so much as they are worshiping the true God, but in a wrong manner. God wanted the people to come down to Jerusalem and worship him there. Why? Well, the temple was supposed to be central to their piety because that is a picture of Jesus Christ. And so God wanted the people to learn that if they were to come to him as a father, they were to come to him through the son. And the son is shown forth typologically in the temple. Does that make sense? And remember, the children of Israel are like little children. They're being trained in the ways of God until the fullness of time when Christ can make his appearance. And so the Lord is wanting the people to come to him on the way in which he uh, says in his word. They are to observe the second commandment. Now let me ask you something. If you were to ask a lot of your on-the-street interviews uh, with evangelicals and you found people said, yeah, I'm a Christian, and you ask them, what's the difference between the first and second commandment? How many uh, people do you think would get that answer right? We'll put it another way, how often do you hear sermons on the second commandment? And yet, the second commandment, this was an ongoing thorn in the side of Israel, was the second violation of the second commandment. And what are we to learn about that, about that by way of application for us? That is, we are to, we as Presbyterians, we are concerned about this, and that is the regulative principle of worship. We do only what God has expressly put in his word. And if it's not in the word, we're not to do it. We're not to invent high places. We're not to invent and say, well, I think it's a good idea that we do X, Y, Z. That's what the Israelites were saying. I think it's a good idea that we have these high places because Jerusalem, after all, is far away. And, and, if, and if I have to do this in Jerusalem, well, then it's going to take time out of all that I have to do. Well, listen, that's what God said to do. But people thought they were wiser than God, and they said, well, I think we need places you know, closer to where we live. And, and we're still serving God, right? Well, in a sense, yes, but in another sense, no. Because God is the one who's determined how he will be worshipped. So you see, friends, the, the second commandment is very important today and why we should be careful about what we do in worship. Let me move on. In verses 4 through 16, after the overview of Joash's reign, Joash confronts Jehoiada over house repairs. Now, this is a, a really interesting um, historical moment because you see that Jehoiada did his job well. He trained King Joash, and what does Joash do? Joash corrects the teacher later in life. And, and he comes to Jehoiada, and he says, the house is in disrepair. We need to repair this. And he, he commissions 
the priests to be about the work of collecting the money and repairing the house. But what happens? Over time, it's not getting done. And so he summons Jehoiada back and says, what, what's going on here? You aren't doing what I asked you to do. And here we see a, really a, a couple things. One, the importance of the temple, the centrality of Christ in worship. That the temple, the image of Christ was, was beginning to fall apart. But we also see the importance of um, discipling the next generation and, and the blessing of sometimes being admonished by a younger generation. Sometimes you older folks, you get soft over time. And you need some of those young buck radical guys to remind you of what you taught them long ago because you're not applying it in your own life anymore. And thank God that he does that. Many times I've sat in Presbytery and I thought, I don't know that I would have brought that up, but, you know, I'm kind of glad he did. He's only been in the ministry two years, but I'm glad he's speaking up. Well, let me bring it to the third and final point. We've got to close. And that is, Joash does falter. Now, he falters grievously in Second Chronicles 24, here to a lesser degree, and, and that is, in short, as the reformations are going on, and this often happens, that whenever the church is improving her ways within, Satan then, if he can't undermine the church from within, what does he do? He will bring outside hostility against the church. As the church begins to reform herself and become more pure again according to his ordinances and his word, what happens? Well, then sometimes Satan then will stir up opposition. And so Satan stirs up uh, Haziel, a foreign king, to besiege the walls of Jerusalem. Now, here is where Joash falters. And when we get to 2 Kings 18 and 19, we're going to see this is where Hezekiah does not falter. Hezekiah was a better king than Joash, I would argue, on, on this very point, in that when, when the enemy came to the gates of Jerusalem, Joash, I'll put it this way, he panics. And what does he do? He's got a foreign enemy threatening an invasion of Jerusalem. And instead of calling upon the Lord and gathering the people of God to call upon the Lord and letting the Lord be our shield and our defender, what does he try to do? He takes objects out of the temple, the, the gold and the silver objects and the utensils and such, and tries to appease King Haziel with this gift to get him to go away. Now, temporarily it works, but let me tell you, appeasement in the long run does not work. And this, I think we should censor Joash at this point. We're going to see Hezekiah later does trust in the Lord and won't give in and doesn't seek to bribe the enemies away. And I think today the church, we need to recognize this. You know, we have enemies out there who are coming to our gates and they're demanding of us, the church, to compromise. They're, they're demanding that we compromise the pronouns. They're demanding that we comp compromise sexual ethics. They're demanding that we compromise on the issue of divorce. There are all kinds of things. A and we, I think, should learn here that we are not to take the precious things of God and give them away in the hopes that we'll appease them and they'll go away and they'll leave us alone. 
Maybe if we just compromise a little bit on our ethics. Now, I say this. Um, I recognize that there, there are many, several ministries I have, and I've had for years, which I have by the good graces of others, meaning I get to go other places and minister. But I have settled this in my own mind many years ago. But if I am asked to compromise or pull back on certain biblical truths, they can go ahead and, and remove me from ministering in those places. If, if I'm going to minister the word of God, I'm going to minister the whole counsel of God's word. And, and, and maybe that means I can't teach at this school anymore or wherever. But um, we, don't, we don't trade off. We don't trade off our sexual morality, our standards, in the hopes that we can still stay on somehow and, and, and begin to minister. Jesus Christ and the Bible is not for sale. We're not going to take that which is even more precious than gold or silver that Joash gave away and, and give it away to idolaters who really often I don't think are wanting peace with us at all. Um, you know, Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, there will be a time where we would have to count it all blessedness. He said, blessed are you when men hate you and say all manner of false things against you for my name's sake. And, you know, we're going to have enemies come against the OPC, especially in a day of the Internet, I think. And, and one of the things we have to realize is, is that we don't panic and we don't run. We don't remove the valuables of Christ and his word and try to appease our enemies with bribes. Our enemies aren't interested in, in, in our repentance. Now, there is a time, I do think God sometimes raises outside opposition to reveal sin in our lives. And when there is sin and guilt, then we do need to repent of it and confess and be reconciled. But mind you, the, the world is not interested in reconciling with you. Um, the early church faced this. What, what was it that the early church faced? The Roman Empire was saying that to the church, you Christians, they were saying, you need to, be, you need to say Caesar's Lord. You need to... You need to Go into the temple and give us that little sentence. Caesar's Lord. That's all you have to do. Now, why did they want that to be said? They didn't care if you said Jesus is Lord. That wasn't the point. They wanted you to compromise. They wanted the early Christian fathers and mothers to compromise that Jesus is only Lord. Now, there is no other Lord. There is no other God. See, Rome was perfectly content for you to have a plethora of gods if you want. What they didn't like was that you would only have Jesus Christ as your God. That's, that's what got the early Christians in trouble. That's why they were insisting in the arena that they say, come on, just say Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go. We won't put you to the stake here. We won't burn you. Remember Polycarp? Come on, Polycarp, you're 86 years old. You know, this doesn't look good on the news if we burn an 86-year-old man. Just say Caesar's Lord. What's, what's the harm in that? 
And Polycarp said, the harm is that I'm denying Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Let me say this just in close. What's going to keep you from panicking? What's going to keep you from selling out to our enemies? Well, here's what I think the answer is. I think it's being filled with the Spirit of God. What made the difference between the disciples on the night that Jesus was arrested and the, and the disciples, the apostles that you're reading about in the opening chapters of the book of Acts? Why are they fleeing as soon as the Roman guard shows up, leaving Jesus alone, with the exception of maybe John and Peter following at a distance, though John eventually flees, I think, too, naked. What's the difference between that and the fact that they're standing boldly in the temple proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Sanhedrin is saying, look, if you don't stop preaching in his name, we're going to keep punishing you. And they're like, hey, we're not going to stop preaching in his name. What made the difference? The difference, I think, was the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That Peter, who cowardly denies Jesus Christ three times with curses and oaths at the threat of a little girl by the fire, now is able on the day of Pentecost to preach with all boldness Jesus Christ publicly in Jerusalem. The difference was the Spirit of God. Jesus Christ has ascended to his throne. He has given us his Spirit. How can I be filled with the Spirit? I'm filled with the Spirit as I seek to fill myself with God's Word. The Spirit applies himself through the Word of God. You want to be a spirit-filled Christian? Read your Bible. Know your Bible. Listen to preaching. Meditate on the Word day and night. This is how you're a spirit-filled Christian. It's not, a, you know, it's not just a mountaintop experience where you go off. You know, that's great when the Holy Spirit does bless extraordinarily like that. But, but it's being filled with the Word of God. The Spirit of God uses His Word that He inspired. That's what's going to make you stand in the day of adversity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and, and pray, God, that the Holy Spirit uh, would continue to help us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.